So the subject of the talk tonight is the first noble truth. So the Buddha famously said, probably many of you have heard this, he was sitting in front of the forest with some of his uh, bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, and he picked up a handful of leaves and said, which is more, the leaves in my hand or the leaves in the forest? One of these duh questions. (laughs) said, oh, venerable sir, of course the leaves in the forest are more. But he said, yes, and how much I know and understand is as the leaves in the forest, but the leaves in my hand are all you need to know for awakening, for freeing your heart from suffering, and that's what I'm teaching, that's what I'm offering. And so the first... That, that's not from the first the sutta of the Four Noble Truths. But when he began to teach, after his awakening, when he when it had to decide what were the most important things to share, that's what he started with. The first teaching that he gave was elucidating the Four Noble Truths, which were mentioned briefly the other night. I'm only going to talk about the first one tonight. But as you know, the first one being dukkha, the word in Pali, and I'll talk a bit about the translation. Loosely translated as suffering, but that's not so helpful. Um, the, the second one, the, uh, the cause of dukkha, which is tanha, thirst or craving. The third being that there is a cessation of, of dukkha, the cessation of thirst, the cessation of craving, freedom of heart and mind. The fourth is the path, the way of cultivation of heart and mind, a way of life to free our hearts and minds from craving and confusion. So the first truth that he thought, this is the most important thing to share because it's going to really free you from the suffering that arises, and I'm using suffering specifically, the suffering that arises in our heart and mind in relationship to living a life, a living experience. The Four Noble Truths don't mean that stuff stops happening in the world, but when we understand the way we relate brings us, instead of creating more suffering in our heart and mind, can really live with ease, with peace, with non-contention. So talking about this for him and for me, it's not like a philosophy that we should learn and memorize. I mean, that's the way we communicate on the intellectual level. That's the way I read about it and talk about it. But when the Buddha talks about these truths, each of the four truths has an action that he says must accompany it to really, to really work it, you could say. The action that needs to be seen through with the first noble truth is to be understood. Now, this is the first noble truth of dukkha, the first noble truth is to be understood. And when, it's at, when you finish it, it has been understood. So understanding doesn't mean an intellectual, philosophical, able to parse it out and say it back. It's like a cellular, deeply knowing what he's talking about, knowing it shifts our perception, our relationship, our whole interpretation of how we understand ourselves and life. And that's really the level of insight. It's transformative. And the intellectual level can get us looking, but the investigation, the inquiry, the steady mindfulness is, the, uh, is a tool, a supportive condition that allows for this really shift of perception again and again. Oh, that's how it really is. One thing I love about the, the way awakenings describe and the way insights work. This freedom is not about creating a different state of mind or world and arriving there and living there on a cloud separate from this world. Sorry, no. It's this world as it is. It's that what, what keeps us in confusion is this inaccurate recognition of reality the way it already is. So our practice, awakening, doesn't change reality. 
but it allows us to understand our hearts and minds, to understand and live in harmony with reality rather than in this ongoing contentious relationship. The contentious relationship is always wanting something more, always trying to get rid of what's here. As Byron Katie says, when you fight with reality, you lose. (laughs) So what we're really cultivating here is it's really so um, elegant. (laughs) One of the highest kind of insight knowledges that Buddha talks about is called yata bhuta, jnana dasana, which could be translated as um, things as they have come to be in this moment, recognizing knowledge and vision of things as they have come to be in this moment. So you might say, all this practice, all this hard practice, just so we can recognize what's already here. That's right. That's right. But that's also, to me, incredibly um, inspiring, but confidence-building. If it's already here the way it is, it's already true, it doesn't mean that you have to personally create something. In fact, you're trying to personally create something is one of the main problems. <laughs> and so our practice of moment-to-moment mindfulness, meeting this moment as it is, it doesn't seem very amazing when you're just meeting a sensation of unpleasantness in your big toe, right? You want something juicy. You'll get something juicy. You hang around here for six weeks. You'll get something plenty juicy. And so how can we bring awareness to that? So (laughs) when the Buddha shared this first noble truth of dukkha, from the sense that the understanding of it frees us. As as Tejaniya says, the understanding of dukkha is not the feeling tone of dukkha. Understanding dukkha isn't a miserable experience. It's freeing. It's uplifting. It's happiness producing. So that's just, I would just want to introduce that to really explore, to begin to to just share. I'm just going to share some reflections about this because, of course, it's a huge topic. So just to read the the Buddha's description of the first noble truth in his... uh, first sermon, the setting the wheel of the Dhamma in motion. And then I'm going to talk about the translation. So this translation from Tanisaru Bhikkhu, he translates dukkha as stress. So that's one translation. Now this, monks, is the noble truth of stress. Birth is stressful. Aging is stressful. Death is stressful. So far, no argument, right? Sorrow, lamentation, pain, Distress and despair are stressful. Or you could say dukkha. Let's say dukkha for all of that. Association with the unbeloved is dukkha. Separation from the loved is dukkha. Not getting what one wants is dukkha. In short, the five aggregates of clinging are dukkha. Five aggregates of clinging, we will talk about later, but that's our five aspects of experience. It's one of the ways the Buddha parses out the experience of being a human being. Body and mental experience. They're dukkha. So if you're thinking at this point of the translation of dukkha as suffering, and that's how we normally hear it, no? The reason I think that's too limited a translation it's for, at least in English, at least in my mind, when I hear or read suffering, even though I know the word dukkha has a much wider, um, it incorporates much more, in my mind, suffering means unpleasant, unwanted, and the, it, it's conflated with dislike and aversion in my mind almost immediately. Is that true for anyone else? When you hear suffering, you don't go, okay, just suffering, a neutral word. Not really, no. And so suffering is like too, it doesn't work so well for me in, in English. Bhikkhu Analayo 
in his one of his earlier books, gives, he's, he's working with a translation of words, and he gives a couple of different examples of how the word dukkha could be parsed out and translated. And I like them both. I'll share both of them. One is, and I won't go into too much, but dukkha, he breaks the two out and says that du means difficulty, and ka is the hole in the wooden wheel of an ox cart that the axle goes through. And so it goes through, and because the, the wheel is this, it's this round, wooden kind of rough wheel with just this hole and this wooden pole that the axle goes through. And the whole experience then of how that cart moves is with friction, with difficulty. It's rough. It's not smooth sailing. And if you've ever ridden in such a cart, I will tell you, that's definitely true. <laughs> you need a lot of padding, a lot of stuff to kind of hide the roughness. I like that. It's just... It's, it's just the friction, the friction in life. The way um, Ruth Dennison used to describe it is it's the, the little leak in the canoe, you know, or there's always something. <laughs> we like to say, oh, it's always something. So dukkha, the difficulty. Another way he describes a different way of, of parsing it out is just not standing in an easy way, standing with difficulty. Or as Bhikkhu Bodhi says, just the kind of the basic unsatisfactoriness running through our lives. It doesn't mean, and as I'll get to that everything is unpleasant. It's not that. It's looking at our life in a whole different way. So it's it's not yeah, it's not about just looking at unpleasant. It's actually, as he said, inclusive of all aspects of our life. And what it's highlighting is in the difficulty, the uh, kind of the friction, is it's if it's the sense of the unreliability of all conditioned phenomena, of the um, unsatisfactory in the sense that if we're looking to or resting on or subtly holding to or placing our trust or faith in any particular moment of experience to looking to it for more than that moment it can't it can't offer that it's unreliable it's unsatisfying when we're looking to it when we're not recognizing it accurately this is now me now not the buddha when we really see that unreliability when the clinging lets go and we say well this is how things are it's just how things are. And that way, you can say it's dukkha, not in the sense of suffering, but just in the sense of this is how they are. Nothing stays the same for a fraction of an instant. Nothing's reliable in the way of somewhere to land or make a me. But that's how it is. So that's really, I think, a little bit more of a sense of dukkha, much more inclusive. There's another sutta where Sariputta breaks down um, the, the dukkha, where the Buddha just really talks, as I read it to you. But he says there's kind of three different areas, ways you could look at it or, or explore it in our experience. And the first is the unreliability, the stress of the difficult, of the unpleasant, of most of these things, birth, aging, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, having to be with what is unloved. (laughs) All of those things are, I would say, in English, obviously suffering, right? I don't think any of us would argue with that. And then that's when, when I first would hear about this years ago, the question would be, oh, hello, that's like the first noble truth. The Buddha thought out of everything he knows, all the leaves in the forest, the first thing he has to tell us is birth, aging, death, old age, disease, lamentation, and despair are not uh, a fulfilling experience. (laughs) (laughs) So having practiced a lot, you think, okay, he did this for a reason, right? There's a very good reason. And even on this level, we'll get to that in a minute, the the second way of talking about dukkha the parinamidukkha is 
Uh, dukkha, the unreliability, the unsatisfactoriness due to change. What is beautiful and pleasant changes always. And just this is separation from what is loved. And the third, it's called Sankara Dukkha. And I, in my mind, the two kind of go together because Sankara is like the... Sankara means formations, mental formations. And the Sankara Dukkha is kind of the endlessness of formations, mental formations coming together and going apart, physical formations coming together and going apart. You can look in, just in your mind today. You probably can't even begin to remember all the mental formations that arose. Because every moment of perception is a mental formation. Every thought is a mental formation. Every mood, every Vedana that arises is a thought about a million in any day. That's just how it is. But when we're starting to really have a steady awareness, we notice the constant, constant coming together, going apart, coming together, going apart. Try to put any, um, any kind of emphasis on any one of them for reliability, stability, for, for me to be me, or I'm just a formation coming together and going apart 10 million times an hour. So that's the level of Sankara. I'll start by talking about the first one, and probably mostly about that, because first, it's the most obvious, right, that there's suffering in being together with what we don't want to be together with, difficult stuff. And yet, if we really understood deeply the way the Buddha is talking about that that is the nature of all conditioned formations, we wouldn't be suffering from these things as we do. So that's the difference between the intellectual understanding and the really getting it. Because the way we suffer that is by not, not really knowing. Even if we know intellectually, not really knowing, then the response that comes up, that's how we get caught in these fires of longing, the fires of aversion and resistance, the fires, whatever it takes, self-judgment or blame or anger or loneliness or longing or whatever, all these reactions, these responses that come up. And when they come, we need to meet them, of course, with mindfulness, but they come up due to the moa, the delusion of not recognizing accurately. And this isn't anything personal. If you even had one thought when I said that of, oh, God, I'm so, like, deluded. Yeah, you and everyone else, because that's just the way it is. It isn't personal. It's just, you know, the habits of mind. That's what we're cultivating here, shifting the habits. But it's amazing how much we don't recognize it. So the delusion, this is, this is the way I break it down in my mind, the tormented response to this basic dukkha dukkha, the dukkha of unpleasant, unwanted experience. The three, three ways that I notice the delusion um, manifests. One is just outright denial. This isn't happening. And that's an amazing, amazing quality. The second is it manifests as inattention. We don't notice. And the third is the misperception. We actively perceive something in an inaccurate way. Like, th- like, this apple is really going to make me happy. This is the most beautiful apple that ever existed. Substitute anything in the world for apple. You know, that's a simple example. Support or not recognizing. But it's a riot when we start looking at how, when we totally know intellectually this is true. I don't think anyone would argue, but even we've been looking at it all our lives. Still, the habit of mind of denial can be so strong. Just yesterday, we were chatting. I was chatting with a very good friend who totally knows this stuff, okay? This is not someone new to the Dharma. And we were just chatting, and he was talking about having lunch with another friend and talking about a third friend who was suffering some ill health or something. And he said he hadn't seen the third one for a while. And his friend told him, well, how old has this person become? He said, oh, well, now... She's 75 now. My friend was thinking to himself, wow, she's really gotten old. Then he thought, but I'm 75. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm not old. (laughs) And then we were laughing about it. But that's what the mind does. Just, Just on such a simple level, but all the time. I won't give you too many examples. I'll give one other. 
um, Joseph reminded me of it. Uh, it actually happened to me, but I'd forgotten about it. And then he used it in a talk, and I thought, oh, well, since it happened to me, I get to use it. You know? <laughs> we fight over examples, but actually it happened to me, so he can't claim it. Um, so many, many years ago, I was in the hospital. I'd been there a few days, and um, it's not a big deal, but they were you know, going, you know how they, uh, I was getting IV, whatever, antibiotics or whatever. And I'd, since I'd been there a few days, it was getting harder for the nurses to get the IV in, you know. And, and, and this particular morning, the nurse couldn't do it. You, know, you can try, try, can't do it. It's not, it's not a pleasant experience. And so the nurse went out and said, well, I can't do it. And she went out and just grabbed the first doctor who was walking by. No offense to any doctors here. But the nurses are the ones who do that all day, <laughs> not the doctors. And I was, you know, I was a little out of it, but I'm thinking, great, yeah. So the doctor came, and he, it, he had a bit of a trouble. He finally got it in, but it was, you know, a few times. I wasn't complaining, but I think a couple little tears. And, I just, and he goes, well, what's the matter with you? This doesn't hurt. <laughs> and uh, he went away. Now, I don't actually have a problem with that because the, its actions were coming out of trying to help me. And it's so hard for us to be with unpleasant, with pain. This is why it seems like sometimes on retreat we're just going on about open to the hindrances, feel the unpleasant sensation. You might think, why the heck can't they talk about something a little more cheery? Which we will, but there's a reason. It's so hard for us to be with unpleasant, with pain. And I I imagine, I never saw that guy again, but I imagine for him, he's trying to help. He knows he's not doing a great job and he knows it's hurting me, but he still, it has to be done and he's trying to help. And it's just too painful to let it in, you know? This is where our practice of being with our own experience opens us to empathy and compassion. So, but that's like an outright denial. What do you mean this doesn't hurt? on all kinds of levels. I've known perfectly rational people (laughs) who are having some kind of physical thing going on and they refuse to go to the doctor to get because they're afraid of getting a diagnosis. Have you met anyone like that? As if it's not happening, if you don't have the diagnosis, you know, it's like whatever's going on is still going on, and people don't want to go and get the diagnosis. Afraid, it's just denial. If I pretend it's not happening, it's not happening. And somehow, it's amazing how we can pretend so well as if we really think it's not happening. Have you ever noticed? And then later on, I've noticed, like in uh, when in a relationship in the beginning, and then it breaks up after some years. And in the breakup, it's like all the stuff that's leading to the breakup, I knew it in the first week. You know? <laughs> this pattern of him, this pattern of me, I knew it in the first week. No, no, it's not happening. It's not happening. It'll all be okay. And it might be. I mean, you might work it out, but it's like, wow, wow. I just really didn't let myself look at that. It's an amazing power of mind, this denial of the difficult. And... It, of course, leads into amazing stuff in society. I just want to read this. I read a few years ago a book by um, Adam Hochschild, who's written a lot of kind of um, current historical books. And this was in the early 1990s. He went to Russia right after the breakup of the Soviet Union. And he was interviewing and talking to people who'd been in the Stalinist gulags, who'd been arrested or, or guards or whatever, because it was just, people were just beginning to be able to talk about it. But all the years, you know, under the, under the Soviet Union, it was never spoken about at all. So this whole book called Unquiet Ghosts, he's going around talking to all different people. But towards the end, I realized for me, in a way, what I got out of the book, besides a lot of really unhappy stories, was that power of denial. And this is just something I just want to read from him toward the end of it. Um, he said the, the NKVD, which is the, the people that went around arresting people, and you know, they were talking about 20 million people in the gulag for years and killed. This isn't like a few 
unfortunate people here and there. This was like a mass movement through all of society. And he said, so the NKVD, which is arrested people, was far better at inspiring terror than at ordinary detective work. And those who tried to avoid arrest by lying low and moving from place to place had a good chance of success. However, people rarely tried. Despite the mass arrests, almost everybody believed it won't happen to me. People deny bad news because it implies worse news. It's like the person not going to the doctor. If I'm about to be arrested, that would mean the whole system has gone mad. And we just can't quite go there. And then he went into this, and this was written in the early 90s. And today, if there is a greenhouse effect, a depletion of the ozone, a shrinking of ocean fish stocks, expansion of desert, steadily widening gap between the world's rich and poor, then that too means the whole system has gone mad. But the analogy is imperfect. For we are free to read and write and talk endlessly. Hence, we do not feel the intense fear produced by the knock on the door. That very lack of urgency is our form of denial. Interesting, huh? It's interesting. Just read that because there's so many different ways this denial works. And in the way the Buddha is talking, and in the way we practice here on retreat, it's really important. Not, I mean, I, I deliberately took that to bring it out into the society, into the world. But what we really explore here on, the tree, on retreat is the moment-to-moment resistance, denial, or, or not knowing how to be with the difficult. And that not knowing how to be with or making it into, this is a mistake, it has to go away, and then I can see what's true, that leads up to what Hoxile was talking about. We need to see here and now freedom isn't getting rid of the unpleasant. Freedom from fear isn't about all the unpleasant goes away. And it's interesting. I don't know if you've experienced, but I have often and seen in other people that when we personally experience something really difficult, uh, uh, an illness or some kind of difficulty or failure in life or relationship or family difficulty, at times, not for everyone, but often it can be experienced almost uh, as alienating us, making us feel more alone and lonely, or sometimes people like try and hide it or feel like, you know, there's something shameful or wrong with me that this is happening. Like, if I had it together, this wouldn't be occurring. Many years ago, I was diagnosed with an autoimmune uh, disorder, whatever you want to call it. And at that time, I was having a lot of symptoms. Now, not so much. But it was went on for, um, I mean, still there, but for the first year or so, when the symptoms were really uh, obvious and acting up and doing all the things to work with it. But I started to see how I kind of bought into this as kind of a spiritual uh, misunderstanding, a kind of if I really was free in my heart and mind, I wouldn't be experiencing this. This is a sign of spiritual failure. Sounds crazy, but I know I'm not the only one who comes up with that kind of thing. And then uh, really, you know, if, if I could really just be at ease and not have aversion, I wouldn't be somaticizing, if it was somaticizing. I mean, who the heck knows? But so this went on kind of subliminally. And it's really hard when there's aversion or greed in the mind. As I think Jill said this the other night, the Buddha said, you can't see clearly. You can't see your own good or the good of another or the good of both clearly. You just can't because all the choices are screened through the veil of fear or aversion or greed. So that was going on for a while. And, you know, then one day... I started to feel a little compassion to the body, not even personal, but just compassion. I thought, if the person next to me was feeling like this, would I like really hate them and blame them and say you're like a useless failure? Probably not. 
So let's try to bring it in just to this poor body. And then it dawned on me. I started thinking about all these great um, um, spiritual beings that I really respect. Guess what? They died like of cancer. Ramana Maharshi had cancer. The 16th Karmapa, he died really a lot of sickness. Ajahn Chah had that nine or ten years, you know, being um, almost paralyzed after his stroke. Guess what? Everybody gets sick and dies. It's not a sign of personal failure. It's like, and it's now or it's later. Everyone gets sick. There's only one way you don't get sick, and that's that you die really early before you get sick by an accident. That's about it. And to, to think that it's an isolating experience, an alienating experience, is so not seeing the Buddha saying about dukkha, this is an aspect of all life for everybody. It's a characteristic of all phenomena. It unites us, it unifies us as human beings. I had, to, I had a, an appointment at the, today at the UMass uh, Medical Center in Worcester, which is a really huge teaching hospital. I've been going there on and off for years. And there's something about going there that I really appreciate a lot because it's huge. And when you go there, there's just people from all over, all different kinds of people, all age ranges, all classes, except maybe the big, rich millionaires. They don't have to go, but everybody else. People from all ethnicities, all groups, you know, and and all the people that are there, except for the people working there, them too, but you don't see it, Everyone's there with some kind of disease or something is difficult for them. That's why they're there. And I really, what I appreciate, I just get this sense of we're all in this together, in this world. It's not like a shameful or thing or a mistake or something you've done wrong and if you could really get it together, you wouldn't have to deal with this. Stuff happens. We're all in it together. And that can really be, as Ajahn Sumaya said, that's the opening into empathy and connection and, and non-separation rather than taking something difficult that's happening as a sign of failure or isolation. So Ajahn Sumaya said some of the Thai uh, abbots used to start their talks by saying, Dear brothers and sisters in old age, disease, and death. <laughs> just, yeah, that's just... <laughs> so, you know, we can laugh, but it helps to laugh. It helps to laugh. It's not a denial. Just that we remember that freedom from fear doesn't mean we get rid of all unpleasant experience. It has nothing to do with it. Freedom from fear is freedom from our misunderstanding, the deeply rooted habit of evaluating the worth of our life and the worth of experience by how pleasant it is. I think someone, I think Jill was talking about that last night, and we'll talk about it a lot. But this is the source, really, of the habits so deep, you know, that the Buddha described, and we'll talk more about it, just I'm going to be very brief that every sense contact, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, physical touching, any mental experience, is experienced by the mind very quickly as having a quality of pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Very quick. And unrecognized, which is so quick, we mostly don't. The habit of mind is with the pleasant, oh yeah, good, great, more, with the unpleasant push away, right? This is like the source of the hindrances. With the neutral, huh? Huh? Neutral? Is there neutral? Let me get on the phone. Let me check the email. Let me just cruise around the internet. God forbid a moment of neutrality. Bored out of my mind in two seconds. In fact, someone was telling me, and I've seen my mind do this, and retreat you're sitting, it's calm. Calm is neutral. It's actually really nice if you could notice it for a second. But the mind can often start making up all kinds of stories and as likely as not, a suffering one. 
make up a whole, get lost for 10 minutes in the story of what might happen in three months if I see this person and I say that and they say this and then we do this and then, 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 then you come. Oh my gosh. But at least I'm the one suffering. So we really, you know, that's more pleasant than just neutral. Neutral. But anyway, this is such a kind of deep habit, this reactivity to pleasant or unpleasant without recognizing it, that we start to, and just check and see, because it keeps slipping in, evaluate the worth of experience based on its pleasantness or its unpleasantness. And so this is really what keeps this whole uh, delusion running. This is really, you could say, what samsara is, the endless search for a little bit better, a little bit better. Not that, more of this, not that, more of this, endless, endless. Let's take us into the second um, aspect of dukkha that of change. There's one place where the Buddha said, talking to Sariputta, all Vedana, Vedana is the word for feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. So that's arising with every moment of sense experience, right? He's saying all Vedana is included within dukkha. And this, I think, is really important to see, to expand our understanding so we don't kind of keep falling back into it's just the difficult. It's just the difficult, you know, it's just the unpleasant. So that we can see it really is all aspects are unreliable. All Vedana is included within dukkha. Why? Because of the unreliability, because of the constant change, because there's nothing to hold to. Separation from what is loved. I want to say a bit again, again, I it's been said before, but again, this does not mean we don't appreciate the pleasant at all. So recognizing pleasant is just what it is. It's pleasant. It's beautiful. In fact, the Buddha has a sutta where he talks about before he was awakened. He said, um, I like this a lot. It occurred to me to explore what is the gratification in the world? What is the danger in the world? What is the escape from the world? And he saw there is pleasure and whatever pleasure and joy there is in the world, this is the gratification. So he's not saying there's not pleasure and joy or that there shouldn't be pleasure and joy. There's a lot of really pleasant experience. But then he said, that the world, or each moment of experience, what he means by the world is the six sense contacts over and over and over. That's what he means by the world. That the world is impermanent, unreliable, and subject to change. This is the danger in the world. And the abandoning of the desire and lust for the pleasant experience is the escape. And I think that's important to see. He's not saying the abandoning of all pleasant experience. He's saying the abandoning of the desire and lust. He's very, very practical. And I think it's really important to see that, to let it in. Because sometimes on retreats it can happen, you know. Part of the reason we don't see this isn't so much... Well, it's denial, but it's also the inattention. We notice what's pleasant and beautiful, and then we don't notice, you know, all the moments that not, the constant shifting, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. This is going on every moment. Through inattention, we may not notice. We just kind of fixate on the pleasant. It goes away. We're sad, but we don't really see that's the way of all things, and then fixate on the next pleasant. But um, the Buddha said, dukkha, Experiencing dukkha either ripens as confusion, ripens as bewilderment, or it ripens as search. I love that. So when you notice the beautiful sunset out there, the Buddha's not saying dukkha, that sunset's dukkha. It is. It is dukkha. 
Because everything <laughs> and phenomenal experience is dukkha. But he's not, dukkha doesn't mean bad or something to go, oh, it's dukkha, the heck with it. He's not saying that. It's beautiful. And then it goes, right? Probably all you guys lined up there watching the sunset. You didn't beat your breast and lament and moan when the sun went down. I hope, I really hope, but I don't know. Did you, you know, because you understood that. So something like that, there doesn't tend to be the clinging. So get a sense of what it feels like to be quite appreciate, quite present with the pleasant, with the beautiful, without clinging to it. The Buddha said, what is beautiful in the world remains so, but the wise one no longer strives after it, or the wise abandon the desire for it. Now, a lot of us actually don't want to abandon the desire for it, because it's still so deeply ingrained that that's the direction of happiness. And we can't talk ourselves out of it intellectually. So why on retreat? One of the reasons retreats can seem so difficult, one of the reasons that it can... I mean, it's not always difficult. There's plenty of beautiful stuff happens too. But because we're cultivating this steady moment-to-moment mindfulness, and as we're moving and opening the instructions, it's this, this simple mindful awareness meeting whatever's naturally occurring the more steady the mindfulness gets through all the activities of the day, there's no way in the world with steady mindfulness that you won't notice more kind of the unreliability, the unsatisfactory nature of existence at times. Unless you already know that so deeply because we're so good at denial and inattention that we just don't notice it. The steady awareness, this is the, uh, the condition, the supportive condition for wisdom to arise. The wisdom that sees, oh yeah, it's all like that sunset. All the beautiful stuff's like, it's beautiful and it's gone. And that knowing that allows for the real openness and presence and freedom of heart-mind. The beautiful is still beautiful, but the wise one no longer strives after it. And the difficult is the difficult. And the wise one no longer has to push it away or run away. It's not happiness, ease, peace is not dependent on the presence or absence of pleasant or unpleasant. So this is really what we're here to discover. And so there's going to be, going to be, plenty of times that it's, it's hard. We, the habit of reactivity to the unpleasant, fear, aversion, all the hindrance, all the aspects of dosa is the word in Pali for all those aspects of aversion, one of the three unwholesome roots, or the loba, the greed, the clinging, the desiring for the pleasant. Both of those rooted in delusion, not seeing accurately, of course. The habit is so strong, and the Buddha talks about it, is the habit of the unawakened person, that the only escape an unawakened person knows from unpleasant feeling is to lust after pleasant sense experience. That's so sad. So we have something unpleasant, the only thing we know to do is go, here, what can you do? You can go have a cup of tea, you can go off into a pleasant fantasy, you can go sleep. As I think Manindraji said, sleep the poor man's nibbana. <laughs> you can take a walk, whatever. I'm not saying those things are bad. I'll get to that in a minute. But he's saying that's the only escape an unawakened person knows. But when he's talking about the escape from the suffering, he said it's the abandoning, the seeing through of the clinging, the craving. And we don't abandon it by an act of will. I will no longer relate to the pleasant with craving. I am now really committed to not having any aversive response arise in relationship to unpleasant. I mean, may it be so, right? Good luck. 
because the habits, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, are rising so much. The habits of this leaning into the pleasant and away from the unpleasant are so kind of deeply, deeply practiced that even with a deep commitment and all the will in the world, and even seeing again and again the suffering that comes, and I mean suffering in this from from these these um, really diluted responses to experience, and it just increases our disconnect, our alienation, suffering, the wanting and the aversion. But the habits are so deep, we can't just stop them. So, and I say that not that we should stop them. It's like this is where we bring in the steady awareness more to see how these habits are working. Get interested in it. The Buddha said, dukkha ripens as confusion or it ripens as search. The search is this quality of interest. What is going on here? So you go through the day and you do feel like more kind of unpleasant than you're used to. Can you, at first, the first, the first response is, you know, can you just get interested? You're sitting and there's some sound outside and you just feel like murderous rage. You think, okay, what's going, your mind's going, what's going on here? It's just a sound, and, you know, but that doesn't help, but you're thinking, it's just a sound. Why am I in murderous rage? Our job as teachers is to just gently say, come back, come back. Feel what's going on right here. Just feel it in the body, in the mind. Notice the process, you know. Unpleasant feeling, the mind pulls away, the aversion gets stronger, the blame goes out, this shouldn't be happening, I'm uncomfortable, and it's this fault of that sound. And then it just spirals, spirals, spirals. So our have to explore what's happening now. Hearing, unpleasant, a thought, really unpleasant, a blame, that's more unpleasant, but if I can focus on the person to blame, I actually don't notice how unpleasant it is here. I can throw it all out on the idea of that person. And that somehow, you know, feels good, but not really. And it keeps the whole thing spinning. So our job is come back and look. Come back and look. Just open and explore. And just two more things I want to say about that, though. We all need to find balance. For most of us, I would say, on a long retreat and in life, there's times when even with uh, a lot of mindfulness and there's wisdom and you're seeing what's going on, but the, the, you could say the dukkha lens, the unreliability lens or the unpleasant pleasantness lens from having been in denial and ignored in attention, it starts to really show up. I mean, sometimes you start seeing, maybe people start noticing wanting, and then they'll come in and say, oh my God, every moment of the day is wanting. Have you had that where it's kind of highlighted, it's exaggerated? Every moment of the day isn't wanting. Every moment of the day isn't any, there's nothing that's every moment of the day. But it gets highlighted. So there's periods where there is a lot of difficult, difficult emotions, physical experiences, or reactivity in the mind, even if it's just something simple like a sound. And even with mindfulness and mindfulness of the aversion, the whole thing just seems to be getting more and more and more. And it just sometimes it just feels, I mean, it can feel like too much and then pass. That's normal. But there's something, we call it in our lingo, like a, a dukkha time, where it's just so much it's just so heavy. And sometimes it can be a little amusing. It can. We used to have something we called the Dukkha Club. We would we'd talk about it, you know, go, oh, yeah, that's really nice. It's just going to pass. You know, that's a lovely sunset. It's just going to sink. You may, this might be the last one. It's going to rain for a week, whatever. Whatever you expect to happen, can't trust it. We would do that joking around. That, that can help lighten it up. But there's times when it's just so heavy, the reactivity is so strong, and even though you're mindful, the mindfulness is there, but I would say the energy of the mindfulness is not as strong as the energy of the aversion or the fear. And how you can tell that's happening, not just a moment or two, but over some time, is even with mindfulness, the whole, um, the hindrance, we've been using the word hindrance, or kalesa, the torment, is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. The more you're mindful of it, the bigger it seems to get, the unwholesome. And so that's just a sign that even in the mindfulness, 
that's all tinged with the aversion. It's just stronger than the mindfulness. And so at that time, what's really mostly helpful is not to keep trying to focus on the difficult thing. Like say if it's pain and you're like, don't keep focusing on the pain. If it's aversion and it's just blowing out of control, don't keep focusing on the aversion. Take um, a skillful means and shift your attention. One thing you can do is shift your attention to something more neutral, to something even pleasant. Like with wise attention, I'll notice if there's a lot of intense stuff going on internally, you can say, well, what else can awareness notice right now? And it might be just the, the neutral of space, or it might be there's a pleasant smell, or you're outside and the sound of the leaves in the trees. It could be anything. It's not about the object. It's about you're still you know, resting in mindfulness, but you're just changing the mindfulness to an object that's neutral or even pleasant to rebring some balance into the mind. It's shifting the attitude in the mind that's aware. So you don't just pound, pound, pound on the negative, you know. We've got to keep the awareness steady but shift it to something neutral or pleasant. Just, you can just play with this when that's going on. Self-compassion, as has been mentioned, and in a way that's doing the same thing. It's shifting the attitude in the mind that's aware from, by gum, I'm going to be with this difficult thing, to, wow, this is really hard. It brings in the gentleness, the acceptance. It's like this now. And with that gentle attitude, the mind is, again, a bit more balanced and maybe it can just gently touch what's occurring. And that compassion, that gentleness, that compassion is really the gentle awareness being with the difficult, the suffering experience that leads to empathy. That compassion is really the jewel, I think, in the heart of understanding the first noble truth. It's the jewel in the heart of really understanding that all aspects of life are dukkha in this way of being unreliable. Can't really give anyone any lasting sense of ease or comfort or steadiness. And when we don't know that, when we don't know that, it's so much suffering. But when we do, when we're able to just touch into even our own suffering, that's just where it starts. That kindness, that ability to be present, that is the empathy that leads to the strength, the courage, and the wisdom. That's what allows the clear seeing that frees our heart and mind, that allows the clear seeing that leads to the wisdom that allows one to make intelligent, appropriate responses in a difficult situation. That quality of deep compassion that allows one to really be with and see clearly suffering difficult aspects of life is really what Dawn was talking about with the the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and some of the choices they made and the actions they did. Incredible strength and choices coming out of clear-eyed recognition of dukkha and how it's manifesting as real suffering in the world and the ability to make a choice. The power of being able to be present with the unpleasant, with the beautiful going away, with the unreliability, the shifting sands of life, to be really present, open-hearted, awake, not clinging, but so finely attuned to the movements of life. This, is, this power of being present gives such a... Uh, The compassion gives such a sense, I find, to me personally, people who have that capacity not to shrink away from the difficulty, not to become embittered, but to really respond. I mean, to me, those are the most inspiring beings in the world, and they inspire us, they inspire me, to continue to explore our own little corner of how dukkha is showing up. It's We each have a different little way it shows up. It's the same truth for all of us. Don't think, oh, they're really suffering. Mine doesn't count. That's denial. Whatever's happening is a a reflection of the truth of how things are in showing up in this mind and body. And if it's like, you know, just a bad pain in your toe or the deepest grief you've ever experienced in this moment, 
when the heart-mind, when mindfulness, awareness can just be with, it's like this now. Not good, not bad. It's like this now. That courage can really, it, it changes our life and it can inspire and change the world. Even when there's not something you can do. So I just want to read a short little poem since I was in Russia. So this is um, from the poet Anna Akhmatova, who was one of the, uh, maybe the most famous, famous poet in Russia in the 20th century. And she, um, and in Russia then, from what I've read, I'm not Russian, I haven't been there, but poets then were sort of like movie stars or rock stars. Now, I mean, like we might have heard of a poet in America, but, you know, that's nice, but poets were really a big deal. So she was one of the most famous poets, and in the period of the Stalinist terror, that's why I thought of it, her first husband was arrested and killed, her second husband was arrested and died in the gulag, and her son was arrested and held for years and years and years. And so she she wrote, I mean, the whole, from, from before the revolution all through, she was writing poets, poems. So by this poem, this is written... Um, She's talking about in the 30s, she was already very famous at this time. And she could have, under the Stalinist terror, she could have given her um, class and her fame, she could have emigrated to France, a lot of people did, and she chose not to. She chose to stay in Russia and just live that life, and also, as a poet, she chronicled it all. So... She's talking here, just this, instead of a preface to a long poem that's called Requiem, about the five years from 35 to 40. But she's talking about a period when her son was arrested under what was called the Yezhov Terror. And she would go every day with hundreds of other women to stand in line outside the prison in Moscow, hoping, no, not in Moscow, in Leningrad, hoping that they would be able to give a parcel in that maybe would go to their relative who was in jail. And they'd go every day, every day, every day, you know, like for 17 months and nothing happening. So she's just writing this. It's just the sense of the power of bearing witness as it is and being able to share that. Uh, empathy really gives courage to people. So first she says, No foreign sky protected me. No stranger's wing shielded my face. I stand as witness to the common lot, survivor of that time, that place. This she wrote, that was 1961. Now she's back, instead of a preface to this long poem. In the terrible years of the Yezhov terror, I spent 17 months waiting in line outside the prison in Leningrad. So like every day they'd get up like at dawn and go stand there all day for 17 months. One day, somebody in the crowd called me by name. And so remember, she's really famous, but no one would have known her name until someone called her by name. Standing behind me was a woman with lips blue from the cold, who had, of course, never heard me call by name before. Now she started out of her torpor, the torpor common to all of us, and she asked me in a whisper, everyone whispered there, can you describe this? And I said, I can. Then something like a smile passed fleetingly over what had once been her face. Just the power, the power of bearing witness with compassion and truth. So in our little way, that's what we're learning moment by moment. So thank you for your kind attention. Let's just sit quietly.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.